Now, uh, something that some of you will probably learn about me as the years go uh, is that I tend to be a little bit of a pessimist. Uh, it's sad, it's true, I don't think that that has a whole lot to do with the good news of the gospel, but I just kind of tend to see the glass uh, 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 a little half empty. So that works perfect because uh, we live in an age where everyone is, is thinking about how they're going to survive an apocalypse, right? So I fit right in, finally, you know, and what, whether they're, they're talking about zombies or, 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 or earthquakes or whatever, people are like doing all their planning how they're going to survive the apocalypse. Well, I've been planning that for years, uh, <laughs> And not really, but, but, but maybe you find yourselves kind of daydreaming about what you're going to do when that bad thing happens. So, like, for, for, for example, uh, a couple years ago, I was at the Shepherds Conference, and I was in the uh, bottom of a three-story building. And, of course, anytime you're in Los Angeles, you hear a truck goes, and you think it's an earthquake. Well, no. You don't, but I do. And, and uh, I was in the basement of this three-story building, and I start thinking about how I'm going to survive this upcoming earthquake. What part of the building was, what would be the safest? Uh, how many days I could last before I really should use my cell phone? Because you know you can't use it right away because everyone is using their cell phones and it doesn't work. So you, you got to wait a while. And uh, maybe you've done something like that. You kind of imagined how you would survive some kind of catastrophe. Now, in my imagination and daydreaming, so you can see how I'm a pessimist, right? I daydream not about going to Hawaii and sitting on the beach, but about what kind of bad things could happen. Uh, well, as I was sitting there, how often do we daydream, really, in the midst of these things, how we're going to please God, right? We, we don't really think, boy, I really hope that someone gets crushed in this earthquake next to me who needs the gospel, right? We just, we just kind of think about how we're going to survive, and that's how I think we often are in our darkest times. Our focus is just making it through until things aren't as bad. Maybe it's until the pain stops. Maybe until the darkness, just your feelings, lifts. Until the gossip about you is maybe repl- replaced by some new juicy tidbits that you're not the focus of. You just kind of want to hold on until the trial's over. Or, as David says in Psalms 57, which we'll be looking at this morning, till the storms of destruction pass by. Maybe you're going through one of the, those storms of destructions now, this morning. You're simply trying to hold on for another day. You're simply trying to survive, but there's more than surviving. Today in Psalm 57, we're going to see how David, the ancient king uh, of Israel, the ancestor of King Jesus, responded to these life-threatening, true life-threatening storms of destruction. And we're going to look how he uh, really did more, that, did more than survive so that we'll be able to learn how to please God as we go through life's destructive storms. And we're going to learn how we can please God as we go through life's destructive storms. And you can see in your notes there, there's kind of two steps to pleasing God in the midst of destruction. One is we're going to be crying out in confidence, and the other is being certain of celebration. But I'm talking about Psalm 57, and we haven't even read it yet. So go ahead and open your Bibles to Psalm 57, and we're going to read it together. Well, I'm going to read it, then you guys can follow along. Uh, And I'll be reading from the ESV, uh, at least for this morning. Psalm 57. To the choir master, according to do not 
destroy. I'm sure a song on all of your playlist. A miktam of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. Selah. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of the lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. Selah. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have preserved your word for us this morning, that we get to open it and read it together. And Lord, we want to be transformed by it. We thank you for this example of how uh, David pleased you. And we know that it's not uh, just uh, a memory of a king 3,000 years ago, uh, but it's true and it's for our instruction today. And we want to learn to please you in the midst of the storms of destruction that we go through. Lord, I pray, Father, that our hearts would be like David, that we would be concerned first and foremost for your glory. Please give us ears that are eager to listen, hearts that are willing to be transformed. Help us to put our dependency completely upon you. I pray, Father, that you would be glorified uh, through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. The psalm begins here with a note for the public singing of the psalm to the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy, a miktam of David. I think that this is useful for us to, to, to look at as part of God's inspired word there. It's more than just a private journal uh, uh, entry. This is not just a, a David's dear diary moment. It's not just a record of his own experience. It, this note shows us that this psalm was included in the temple worship for the benefit of God's people. It was for the benefit of God's people nearly 3,000 years ago, and it's for our benefit here this morning. It is essential for us. Now, along with this notes that, that, that it's for public worship, uh, I'm sure uh, Dennis read these and said, well, I'm going to plan my songs like this. No, there's, it's, it's, it's stuff that we don't really remember or know specifically what, 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 what it's referring to here. They don't help with our leading worship today. But there is this, this essential note here. When he fled from Saul in the cave. Now, th- there's a couple possible events that that could be referring to. Uh, one is maybe in Psalm 22, 1, where David departed from there and escaped to the cave of of Adullam. Another is in Psalm 23, verse 22. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. 
It was there in Engedi that David and his men were hiding in a cave. Uh, and, and you probably remember that story. They were hiding in the cave as Saul came into the front of the cave to relieve himself, and David and his men are hiding there in the back. Uh, during this time when David wrote the psalm, he was really going through an epic adventure. Uh, remember, David in his late teens had been chosen by God and been anointed by God's prophet Samuel to replace King Saul as king o- over Israel. All this happening while King Saul was still sitting on his throne. Uh, even before David's famous encounter with Goliath, God had placed David in, in King Saul's court. He'd been Saul's armor bearer. He had played music for him. He was even loved greatly by, by Saul. All the while, Saul didn't know that David was going to be the next king. And when no one else would stand up to Goliath, David accepted Goliath's challenge. So here David is probably still a late teen uh, to battle. And his motive, we even see some of that here in this psalm. So that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spirits. Why? David fought Goliath. He knew that the glory of God was at stake. After uh, David kills Goliath, David became best friends with the Prince Jonathan. Uh, he led Saul's armies into, into battle and had huge uh, success in doing so. He married Saul's daughter. During that time, though, Saul became jealous of David. He tries to kill David. He says in uh, 1 Samuel 18, 11, I will pin David to the wall. He throws spears at him. David faithfully, though, continued to serve King Saul while avoiding his attempts to be killed. Uh, You can imagine that's probably better than the worst work situation we have. No one's throwing spears at you. At least I hope not. Finally, David was forced to flee Saul, though. It It was too much. He had to leave behind his wife, leave behind his best friend, Jonathan. He spent the better part of a decade in the wilderness, hiding from Saul and his army. And that period here that David is writing about, time when he's in a cave hiding from King Saul. If you want to, to, to imagine the Essena, of course, King David was, was, was one of the uh, good guys, and Bin Laden was one of the bad guys. But you've seen the movies and seen the pictures uh, of, uh, of, the, uh, of the military forces hunting in all those kind of caves and those, you know, those cave bunker bombs blowing up all this stuff. So it's those kinds of caves or, or, or something like that that David is hiding in. It's that kind of same cat and mouse going on. Instead of, you know, American forces looking for Bin Laden, it's Saul looking for David. David always on the run. Can you imagine that for 10 years uh, on the run? It was this lethal game of cat and mouse that David is writing about here in Psalm 57. Now, perhaps knowing this extreme danger that David was going through makes you feel a little bit like this psalm really isn't for you. You, know, you might look at your life and say, well, that's, that's, that's unpleasant, but it's not that bad. Uh, you're thinking that the storms of destruction that David went through were so much worse, it's not really comparable. You haven't spent years hiding out in caves. You don't have people, at least I hope not, maybe for some of you, but you probably don't have people eager to kill you. But you are called to glorify God, to worship God, to please Him in the midst of whatever suffering you're going through. Now, maybe it is persecution at work or in your family. 
the kind that makes every holiday awkward. Maybe some of you have gone through that. I know that uh, as a Christian, holidays can be very awkward uh, for Christians, even Christmas. Or maybe it's just physical suffering you're going through, uh, recurrent migraines or cancer. Maybe it's the sadness that just kind of just suffocates you and you don't really enjoy anything in life. You wake up just to see another day and you're like, oh, I have to do this again. That's part of suffering too. Or maybe it is financial suffering, just bills that you just don't have enough money to pay. So David, we see here's an example of how to glorify God in the midst of suffering. Yes, he was going through intense suffering, people wanting to kill him, but we go through intense suffering too. It may not be a king trying to kill us, but we do feel squeezed by the unrelenting pressure of living in a fallen world and living outside of the Garden of Eden where life is hard. Like David, we do have enemies, though they're often unseen, a fallen world system that is opposed to the truth of God's word and attacks it at every turn it can. We have an enemy, Satan, who seeks to destroy us with lies, who accuses us before God. Our flesh, uh, even inside of us, that won't be satisfied until we're finally free from this body and at home with Christ. We have enemies. But today, I want you to know that this psalm, Psalm 57, is for you. And God's word ensures that it's for you, right? 2 Timothy 3.16 talks about God's word being profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So this word is essential for you this morning. It's the testimony of how David lived his life pleasing God in a fallen world. And I know that if you're in a right relationship with the Lord Jesus, you make it your aim to please him, like what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.9. That that's your desire is to live a life pleasing to him in this fallen world. So as we look at David's response to these storms of destruction, uh, we're going to see how we can please God in the midst of suffering as well. We looked at these two steps. And the first one is we're gonna, we need to cry out in confidence. We need to cry out in confidence. And that's really where we're going to focus on verses 1 through 5. We need to cry out in confidence. That doesn't sound like a confident cry, just a cry. <laughs> David's confident cry begins in verse 1. It says, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. David begins in verse 1 with his need for mercy, for God to act in a way that he doesn't deserve. He doesn't begin by complaining he deserves better. It's not, woe is me. There's not whining. There's not a sense of entitlement. You know, I've been anointed. I really deserve to be on the throne. Neither does David appeal to a list of good things he's done. I've already written so many psalms, Lord. Instead, he has poorness of spirit. He comes before God, morally bankrupt, knowing that all that he deserves is judgment. There's no pleading except for mercy. But David has reason to hope for mercy from God. God has proven himself in David's past. He says, for in you, my soul takes refuge. Turning to God in the midst of these storms of destruction has become David's habit. He knows where to find refuge. It's not the cave he's hiding in. Unlike David here, who turns to God for refuge, we so often look for refuge in so many other places. And most of us have well-worn paths to those places of refuge we go to most often. What is the cave that you're most used to hiding in? 
They're all, almost always caves we can kind of manage and, and, and manipulate. Never caves of refuge we need to cry out for, for mercy. Now, maybe some of those caves are you know, the size of our savings account or the plan of looking forward to a, a vacation to some exotic place. Maybe it's just you're sitting in a meeting where you're kind of being slandered, being talked about, and you just can't wait to get that latte or whatever it is. Or maybe it's being, it's being healthy to get, get your cholesterol down, which is a good thing. But sometimes, you know, it becomes our, all of our focus is to eat the right organic foods. Or maybe it's being the perfect parents who send their kids to the perfect school and do just so, so, and so, so that our kids turn out perfect. Or maybe it's just some of those kind of more simple refuges of turning on the television or drinking alcohol or making another purchase online. There's so many different caves that we try to run to. Some of those are, are, are good things in themselves. Some of them are bad things. But we find our, our safety there, find our comfort there instead of crying out to God, God, be merciful to me. The suffering David has gone through has trained him to say, for in you my soul takes refuge. He knows this cave is not going to last. He's going to have to go find another cave. In you my soul takes refuge. So he willingly submits himself to God for care. Has God used suffering in your life so that you go to him alone for refuge? I'm sure for some of you he has. Some of you in the midst of suffering, you're learning that now. And, and for others, he's, he's, he's going to use suffering to do that so that we stop going to those caves that don't satisfy, that don't provide any safety and go to him alone. Because of God's past deliverance of David, David can now say in verse 1, In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. In the Hebrew there, the word destruction is plural. There's multitude destructions coming, but there's only one place of safety. He imagines himself as a baby bird hiding under its mother's wing. Destructions are something, picture something as passes by. You can imagine the sight of that oncoming, vast, dark storm cloud. It's threatening, it's ominous. And what does David do? He says, well, I'm like a baby bird. I want to be safe in my mother's nest. There's no pride in this analogy. There's just complete dependence. There's total confidence in God's willingness to be his hiding place. He's humbled himself under God's mighty hand. Like 1 Peter 5, 6-7 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And that's what, Peter, what, what, what Peter's talking about, what David is doing here. He's being humbled before God. He's casting his anxieties upon him. He's looking to God alone as refuge, forsaking all others. In verse 2, he continues his cry here, his cry of confidence. He begins with this cry for, for mercy. Verse 2 says, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. Often when we are in the midst of suffering, tragedy, our first step isn't to cry out to God. Sometimes it's our last. Especially with the ongoing suffering, you know, the kind that we tend to complain about. We complain to our spouses. We complain to our friends. We call out to sleep. We call out to entertainment. We call out for the weekend. 
But there is one to whom we must call out first, God Most High. God Most High here is a term that separates God from the pantheon of of surrounding false gods. He is God Most High. He reigns over all. He has all power. He has all majesty. And David submits to him as he is, as the supreme one, as God Most High, as God who fulfills his purpose for me, who brings about the end that God has planned. Now, David knows the goodness of God. He doesn't have to fear God's purpose. And if you are in Christ Jesus, if you put your faith in him, you've got no reason to fear God's purpose for you either. We're going to look later at Romans 8, 28 to 30. God's plans for you are for you to become like his son. They're good plans. He's began a good work in you that he'll bring to completion. His plans are good for you. We don't have to be afraid of his purpose. Now, God just doesn't have a plan, kind of just something he's charted out for you. He also has the power to fulfill that plan. God, because he is God most high, has the power to fulfill every plan as he intends. He never has to revert to a plan B. He never has to adjust his plan because of unforeseen circumstances. He never has to say, oh, I didn't see that coming. I'm going to have to do something else over here to make my plan happen. Nothing is going to thwart God from his flawless will. His good purpose for you, if you were in Christ Jesus, was initiated in eternity past and will continue perfectly without variation until eternity future. That's good news. David had that confidence. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. Now that doesn't mean, though, that he doesn't cry out to God. He knows God's eternal plan. So what does he do? He cries out to God to execute his plan. It doesn't lead him to be passive and not to pray because God is sovereign. Instead, he cries out to God most high. And he's confident of the answer in verse 3. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. David is confident that the timeless God is going to intervene in real human time. He pictures here the one who tramples him. And the idea is someone getting so close that their feet are catching on to the back of your heels, being trampled down. Saul would eventually see the foolishness of opposing God's anointed one. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. Now David is certain that God is going to send out, it says he will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. God is going to send his own attributes to intervene. He just doesn't send out some really powerful angels. He doesn't send out, you know, some other great kings in the surrounding area who are going to take out Saul. God's got his own task force, his own attributes, his bouncers of steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love, it's God's covenant-keeping love, his loyal love. Now, God is never forced to make a covenant He does so of his own free will. He will keep every covenant he makes. If he has made a covenant with you, you have placed your faith in his son. That is an unbreakable covenant. It's not because of what you were able to give him in return. God makes covenants in our favor and then acts according to those covenants. He has that kind of steadfast love and it's not a non-emotional, attached, devoid love. Well, I signed on the line that I do this, so I'm I'm gonna keep this covenant here. It's steadfast love and faithfulness. It's God's truthfulness to do exactly what he says. He is faithful and able to accomplish his will. 
for, for you. And that's what God's disposition towards David is of here. He's confident of it. Loyal covenant love. Faithfulness to do what he says. There's no discrepancy here between God's promises and his actions. And again, God's never going to learn anything new that's going to force him to revise what he said. There's no fickleness in God that's going to cause him to change his mind. David had this promise from God that he would be king. And he was going to be king. God's steadfast love and faithfulness were going to happen. He knew that God was going to send his task force. They were coming to help. But if you are in Christ Jesus, if he is your only hope in life and in death, if he's your only confidence that you have been made right with God, you have even a better promise than David of being king, right? When you see what David went through as being king, ah, it's a blessing, but I'm glad I've got the new covenant. You have become God's people. You've had your sins forgiven by him. You've been given God's spirit, as it talks about in Ezekiel 36, so that you can live a life of obedience. This is a much better covenant than a promise to be king. Steadfast love and faithfulness are how God acts towards you. That's how he sees you. Through the, I mean, he, he doesn't have any other lens to see you than steadfast love and faithfulness. They are the parallel tracks his sovereign mercy runs on. It's never devoid of care, his plan for you. So David can say in confidence that God is the one who fulfills his purpose for him. He can look forward to steadfast love and faithfulness coming. Even God's discipline of you is fueled by steadfast love and faithfulness. If you belong to him, every circumstance in your life are overseen by his steadfast love and faithfulness. Do we always understand that? Do, do we understand how from the little things like the flat tire, is that his steadfast love and faithfulness working in our favor? Ultimately, yes. Everything from the small things to the much larger sufferings that we go through. David describes more here. Uh, it, it's, it's a situation, but, 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 but we also get to see his response. My soul is in the midst of lions. He's surrounded by enemies here, pictured as lions, with these massive jaws, stronger than any dog's jaws, and really kind of like, 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 like pound per square inch. I don't know exactly how they do that. Uh, stronger than uh, a white shark's jaws, right? So he says, I am surrounded by lions. His enemies are pictured as lions, ready to rip him apart. But what does he do? I lie down amid fiery beasts. Now, this isn't fiery beating dragons. This has the idea that, that, that these lions are ready to do to him so that there's nothing left but just bits. Just kind of like how a fire consumes wood and there's nothing left but ashes. That's all that's going to be left with him when his enemies, these lions, get a hold of him. But what does he do? I lie down amid fiery beasts. He doesn't wait to rest until the rescue is complete. He knew, he was confident God's steadfast love and faithfulness were on the way. So what does he do? He takes a nap surrounded by lions. He reminds us of Daniel 400 years later, sleeping in the lion's den. Describes the children of man. It makes, makes it clear. It's not, it's not real lions people are talking about. It's the children of men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. It's a pretty gnarly uh, visual there, right? Spears and arrows and tongues of sharp swords. But what does he do? He can sleep. 
This wasn't an anxious, sleepless night. It wasn't waiting to rest until the suffering's over. He cries out in confidence and then sleeps. He cries out in confidence and then sleeps. Are you crying out in confidence to God? We have different promises from David, but we have promises too. We have promises, and I mentioned this earlier in Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, including you know this, this visual here of those who are pursuing us like lions and teeth are spears and arrows. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. He has a purpose to make those who belong to him like Jesus Christ in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We have precious promises from the Lord. He has a plan. This is what his steadfast love and faithfulness is accomplishing in our lives. 1 Peter 1.13 says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is going to be revealed from heavens, from heaven. Our hope can be fully set on that. We have his return to look forward to. We have good promises from God to look forward to. We can sleep through whatever we go through as we cry out in confidence. Now, we can see in verse 5 here the, the impact that knowing God's steadfast love has on David. What it produces in his heart with his cry of confidence leads to. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. David's cry for mercy begins with a selfless plea for God to be exalted over all creation. He knows it doesn't end with him. He wants the whole earth to know God's unsurpassable value, to know God's singular importance, to know his incomparable worth. David prays, let everyone know you as you are, Lord. Let them know God as he really is. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. This is what his cry of confidence leads to. So what what liberates David to have God's glory as his greatest concern? Well, David believes that God is who he says he is. He knows that God is righteous and that he only does right. He knows, he's confident that God being exalted and his good are not cross-purposes, but that they're perfectly aligned. That as God is exalted, David's good is accomplished. And that David's good is accomplished, God is exalted. Can you say what David says in verse 5 in the midst of your suffering? Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Now, naturally, we don't want our mistreatment or persecution to last any longer than it has to. Uh, We have the freedom when we are in a really tough job to look for a new job if we can provide for our family. But we don't want to stay in our sickness, maybe for some of us our singleness, our childlessness, our depression, any longer than we have to. But as you're there right now, are you confident enough in God's character to care most about God's glory? Are you confident enough in God's character to care most about God's glory? If you can't say, Lord, I want your glory more than anything, that's what matters most to me, 
you may have exalted something else above the heavens. Is there something else you've exalted above the heavens? Maybe it's your comfort, your happiness, your health, your security, your success. We have to repent of our if only. If only I had this and replace it with if only God is glorified. And that's what David's heart cries out in confidence with his cry of confidence leads to. Is be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Really, to glorify God like this requires that our escape from these storms of destruction not be our number one goal. It really can't be just about getting out of what we're in. Now, no one, none of us here would criticize David if he hadn't gone to verse 5, right? We've been perfectly okay if this was just a prayer, prayer to get out of this. God, help me. But he doesn't stay there. He goes further to be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over the, the whole earth. He had a whole other driving passion than his comfort or his safety. It was God's glory. Our overarching desire cannot be to be free from suffering And I sympathize with you, though I don't know you all, what suffering you're going through. But it has to be to see God's glory exalted in our suffering and through our suffering. Could you imagine where each of us would be today if Jesus' ruling desire was to be free from suffering? Was just to escape? But it wasn't, was it? He had a much bigger desire for God to be glorified above the heavens. We see David's cry of confidence here based on God's character in verses 1 through 5. We need to cry out in confidence, but we also need to be certain of celebration. This is step two here. We need to be certain of celebration. It's just not going to be us perpetually crying out, God, rescue, God, rescue, God, rescue. We also can be certain of celebration. We have something to look forward to. We know he's going to act according to his steadfast love and his faithfulness. There, We can be certain of celebration. And we're going to see that in verses 6 through 11. It's Verse 6, they set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. Again, describing more of uh, the uh, uh, David's being pursued. Describes hunters digging a pit and kind of uh, putting something over it so he would fall into it. You can see the emotional impact this had on David's life. My soul was bowed down. He was almost crushed by it. It was overtaking him. He was exhausted. But the oppression wasn't the end of the story, is it? Yes, they had laid a trap for him. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. And I think what David is doing here, it's not that he's actually gotten to see that yet. But he knows it's going to happen. He's so confident of it. They have fallen into it themselves. I can see it happening. Saul is going to tumble. David knew he would be rescued from his enemies. He was certain of God's victory. God's enemies will fall. And is that true this morning? God's enemies will fall. If God has adopted you into his family, you can be certain of victory. Your greatest enemies, sin will be eradicated. Satan will be vanquished. There will be a day without suffering. Revelation 21 verses 3 through 4 says, 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, this is, describes the final eternal state, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. We can be certain as David was here. They have fallen into it themselves. Sin is going to be done. In fact, if we were to say as David had, sin has been vanquished. Satan has been vanquished. Suffering has been vanquished. And we know we're still going through those things now. We're waiting for them to be done. But we can have that same confidence that David has here. And so we see what that confidence leads to in verse seven. Verse seven, my heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. This is even before he gets to see Saul fall. Steadfast, it's firm, secure, solid. It's not trying to stand on a raft, but standing on a rock. It's more than a feeling, though feelings are included here. David's, it's David's commitment to not waver. His faith is unshakable. He says, I am going to be steadfast. My heart is steadfast. It's not because he's already experienced deliverance, but because he knows God's character. So he refuses to be shaken. Steadfast love and faithfulness are on their way. God keeps his covenants. I'm going to see God's attributes revealed in action, just as we are. Is your heart steadfast this morning? How does our heart get to this place where we can say, my heart is steadfast? My heart, now that's not a proud, right? Look at me, my heart is steadfast. It's a confidence, my heart is steadfast. Well, how do we do that? I think we can go back to verses one through five and practice that crying out in confidence. From verse one, we can practice humbly pleading for mercy, not spending time listing what we deserve instead. Be merciful to me, O oh God, be merciful to me. Verse 1 talks about him finding refuge in God alone. We need to reject other places of refuge. What have you been finding refuge in? What do you need to say no to in this upcoming year because you keep going to it again and again as a place of comfort, of safety that you can control instead of going to him for refuge? This is practically how we become steadfast, by going to him for mercy, by forsaking other refuges. In verse 2, we can see, by believing that God will fulfill his purpose for us, just as David does, to God who fulfills his purpose for me, remembering God's promises, like Hebrews 12, how the Lord disciplines those he loves. It's not punishments, discipline. As you go through suffering to see that he's training you to be like his son. Verse 3, and this is something that we can do, do daily. It says that God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. Write down, how has God shown steadfast love to you? Start a journal in this new year. Start a journal of his faithfulness. You don't have to be exhaustive on the first day. Write four or five things. Verse five, we can pray that God alone be exalted above the heavens. No matter how long we have to suffer. In verse 6, we can look forward to the day when sin and Satan are eradicated forever. This is how we get to this place where my heart is steadfast, by thinking on what is true, by praising God for what he's done, by choosing to pick up paper and pen and writing down, you know, that it's just something that we don't want to do. 
We might think about it now, but tomorrow morning when you're having your quiet time, are you going to want to pick up paper and pen and say, I want to write out how the Lord has been faithful to me? It's just something. As soon as you try to put pen to paper, it's like spiritual warfare right there. Have you guys ever experienced that? You're just trying to actually think about it. And our flesh is like, ah, oh, it's just easier just to read my Bible and I'll pray a little bit. Start a journal. Be, be thinking so that your heart can become steadfast, so you can celebrate what the Lord has done. And ultimately, there's no greater place to be steadfast than in the hope of the gospel. Colossians 1.23 talks about, and Paul, the Apostle Paul says, if you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, in which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the ground of steadfastness. Ultimately, it's the hope of the gospel. It's that knowing that Jesus took the punishment of sinners, of whom I am foremost, of knowing that Jesus has been resurrected from the dead and is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. This is why our heart is steadfast, because of the gospel. With this kind of steadfast heart, with him, and you can see this crying out in confidence, he's working at this. We, he can do what he does in verse 7. He says, my heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Even before he's seen the deliverance, he plans on praise. It's not just his voice here making melody. It's with, with musical instruments. For David, it's his little box harp. Uh, we, we, we did that this morning with, with, with the band. You can almost imagine someone saying, you know, I want to praise God, so I'm going to turn on the CD player. I'm going to turn on the car radio. I'm going to hire a band because I want to worship him because I'm going to see his deliverance. My heart is steadfast, O oh God. My heart is steadfast. In verse 8, he goes even further. Uh, you can imagine, now remember, he's sleeping, surrounded by lions and people with teeth coming, and teeth as spears and all that. And so what does he say in verse 8? Awake, my glory. Awake, O oh harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. And so we see his anxiousness to get the celebration going. He's not dreading the next day. Is it because his suffering's over? Is it because he's guaranteed he's, his feelings are going to be great? Because the cancer's gone or because all of his bill problems are gone? No. He, he, in the midst of it, he does not dreading the next day. His heart's steadfast. He knows God's character. And so he says, awake my glory. And my glory there is referring to the part of him that, that, is, that is able to glorify something. It's our ability to worship. He's saying, awake my soul. Get up, soul. Awake, O oh harp and lyre. Someone push play. I'm ready for this day to start. I, I will awake the dawn. Come on, son, get up. It's time to start praising the Lord. He looks forward to the sun rising and the day of praise that will follow. It may be darkest night now, but that won't be all, will it? Your darkest night may be up, may be yet ahead, but it's not all. Because his heart is steadfast, he knows he'll praise again. And with his heart steadfast, he's already singing. And if your heart is steadfast, if you're submitted to that God is right and only does right, that he is righteous, your faith will become a song of celebration. It won't stay desperate and weak. Your heart is going to sing. And we see that song. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. We can see the extent of his singing there. Sing praise to you among all people, all the nations. 
This is David thinking, this is great, and I love these guys in the cave here with me, but more people need to hear about this. All the nations need to hear about how great my God is. God deserves a bigger audience than just me and my friends. He wants God's, this thankfulness of God to go, to go really to be an international billboard hit. He wants everyone to be singing about God's goodness. And that's what God deserves, right? The worship of all peoples. Not just here, but the tribes and ethnic groups around the world. First Peter 2.9 says, You are, talking about us as God's people, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And here's why. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And that's what he can't wait for. What David can't wait for is to proclaim God's excellencies to those living in darkness. It's not just about personal rescue. It's not about just about comfort and wanting the suffering to be over. It's about God being glorified by all nations. So, and I think that, that this gets to the heart of some of our prayers. Is that why you want God to rescue you from persecution or maybe slander? Is that why you want God to deliver you even from enslaving sins? Maybe from ongoing depression? from health issues, from money problems? Is the purpose of that so that you can give him thanks and sing his praise? Is, is that why you're praying this? So that you can tell how good he is? So that you can tell your classmates and your coworkers about God's goodness? Or is it, or is it about taking the pressure off of you? Is it just about kind of about being rescued? And I'm, I'm gonna say this kind of hard, it's true of me. Is it so that we can return to self-centeredness? Really, it's kind of treating one kind of self-centeredness we'll go through suffering sometimes to another kind of self-centeredness of, of pleasure, a little bit more ease when things just kind of, kind of relax a little bit. You won't praise him in the midst of suffering. I mean, you won't praise him when the suffering ends if you're not praising him in the midst of suffering. You won't praise him when the suffering ends if you're not praising him in the midst of suffering. God's deliverance, his rescue, his relief is not primarily about us, is it? It's about him. Suffering is about our bringing glory to him and rescue is about our bringing glory to him. Verse 10 says, For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. God knows that, uh, David knows here that God's faithfulness knows no limit. His loyal love knows no limit. All God says he will do. And that's true of you too. If God has committed himself to you, and I think that, that, that that's a great way to think about it. If you are in Christ Jesus, God has committed himself to you. If God has removed the enmity that was once be, uh, between you and him, if he's given you new life in his son, you are the object of his steadfast love and his faithfulness. That is his emotional attribute towards you is the steadfast love and faithfulness. It's not a temporary status. It is an eternal status. He's entered into a covenant with you. It's been sealed by the blood of his own son. And we can read sweet, ver sweet verses again from Romans 8, 35 through 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. 
As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't that amazing? He's given his love to you in Christ Jesus your Lord if he is your Savior. He he has nothing for you but steadfast love and faithfulness for all eternity. So what does this lead to? More of verse 5. Verse 5 we read, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. And that's what this uh, being certain of celebration leads to. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. In verse 11, let your glory be over all the earth. It's really kind of the chorus of this song. This is what we should be humming as we leave. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Our hearts need this focus as we go through suffering, and that's why David comes back to it twice. David has aligned himself with God's ultimate goal, his glory. And this is how Jesus taught us to pray too, right? Remember in Matthew 6, uh, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He prays for God's will to be done so that everyone knows how holy God is. It's the prayer for God to be glorified. This is how Jesus himself prayed when he was facing more suffering than than we will ever face. In Matthew 26, 39, and going a little farther, Jesus fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. He's talking about experiencing God's wrath on the cross let this cup pass from me nevertheless not as i will but as you will god's will was what was of supreme importance to christ it wasn't getting out of suffering jesus the sinless son of god was about to go through more suffering than we will ever face more than anyone else ever has he would know the pain is true of being abandoned by friends being tortured by enemies. He lived through what David talks about here. The people whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. There was pits that were laid for him in his way as they joined and lied about Jesus. But that next afternoon, he would go through something infinitely worse. He'd be forsaken by his own father, being treated as sin in our place. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So what did Jesus do as he took the place of sinners on the cross, as he bore the wrath that we deserved? Really, he continued saying what David says here. He could still say, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. And that's amazing to think about. Jesus going through the suffering, the wrath that we deserved, and still crying out, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. That is what, how Jesus pleased God the Father, and that's how we must please God the Father. That's the sweetness of Jesus going through that. Hebrews 2, verses 17 to 18 says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He was human like us, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, though sinless, he is able to help those who are being tempted. As we go through suffering, and we do go through suffering, and we will go through suffering, some of you are going through intense suffering now. You can go to Jesus 
whether it's physical suffering or despair or disappointment or loneliness or persistent guilt or persecution from others. Jesus' hope for those who are willing to submit to him, to his good reign. Jesus is, is willing to teach you what he knew, that God's glory and, his, and our good are inseparable. They're the same. We'll learn from him how to adjust ourselves to him who judges justly. And he'll transform our hearts so that we can cry out in confidence and be certain of celebration. I don't know all of you and what suffering you're going through. Some of it might just be, like we talked about, depression and just persistent sadness. Some of you might be people slandering about you. Some of you might be going through real persecution. Your family treating you horribly because of your commitment to Christ. It might be sickness. It might be loss of a loved one. We don't please him just by putting on a smile and pretending everything's okay. We don't please him by engulfing ourselves in sleep and television and home repair projects. We don't please him by ignoring him and his sovereignty in the midst of our suffering. We please him by crying out in confidence and being certain of celebration. Are you going to please him now by crying out in confidence? Are you willing to begin celebrating his rescue now? God has mercy for those who cry out to him. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you are a a real God who uses real people in this real fallen world. And we have a very honest and humble um, testimony of David here, of what he was going through. And yet, Lord, we see the supernatural in his life. We see how supernaturally you worked in his heart so that he was able to cry out in confidence based upon your character as revealed in your word and then to be certain of celebrating all the while with this one goal in pleasing you, of having you to be glorified. And Father, we confess uh, that in the suffering that we go through, sometimes we fall so short of that. Uh, We just can't wait to get out of it. Sometimes we choose to drown our suffering uh, in, in, in pleasure and escape and all different kinds of things, Lord. Lord, we don't want to go to any other refuge but you. We want you to be the nest that we find our our comfort in. Uh, We want you to be the one that we place our hope in. We want to be certain of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Lord, I pray that you would help us to repent of those false places of refuge we run to and to have a heart that is united for your glory in the midst of our suffering. I do pray that you uh, comfort those who are particularly uh, grieving here this morning, or maybe uh, last year was not a year of uh, where the blessings have been obscured by the suffering. Maybe they're looking towards more of the upcoming year. I pray, Father, that you would use your word uh, to be transforming their hearts, that they would be encouraged about your character, that they would be able to celebrate as well, be able to cry out uh, in confidence and to be certain, to be eager for the next morning, to be eager for tomorrow morning, January 2nd, 2017, because they're going to uh, be uh, proclaiming your praises. We do pray, Lord, that you be exalted, O God, above the heavens, that your glory would be over all the earth, Lord. We pray that that would be true, uh, true, true around the globe, that you'd be blessing uh, even missionaries who are committed to that very end this day, that we'd be committed to the same thing. In Jesus' name, amen.